Well, now's the time during the service when we dismiss our littles. But before we dismiss them, I want to pray for them. They can stand up, though. How about all you littles go back with Heather and Doug? Littles being anybody who is uh, three years old up through second, third grade. Just a couple of them. And I'm going to pray for them as they go downstairs and learn. You guys can go. You'll follow Miss Heather. Looks like they already got them collected. Hey, as they're going, I want to pray. Lord God, I thank you for the children that you have given us. I thank you that we have the opportunity to train them up, uh, to disciple them, uh, to teach them to love you and to love others. Uh, God, we recognize this is a a high calling. Uh, We recognize you have trusted us with them, and we want to make sure that we we train them well. Um, I pray, Father, that you would uh, help them learn downstairs, help them to have fun, and uh, Lord, I pray that uh, you would speak this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, Ryan, could you turn me down just a little bit? I'm hearing an echo. Not sure if it's in my own head. Well, that was all the way off. Right? Ryan wants us to be quick this morning. Is that, can you guys still hear me? Okay, perfect. Um, I don't want to jump right into the message this morning. I want to spend some time praying as a community. Um, just sitting there as we worship thinking. So often we come to church and the people who have microphones are the ones praying. Uh, yes, there is a call to a pastoral prayer, um, but oftentimes I think God just wants to hear the prayers of his people. Uh, so for a few moments, I'd like us to pray. Uh, we can pray out loud. Uh, things to be praying for, Richard, um, Bessie, what else? Abriel and Joel, definitely. So people listen because I'm not going to pray. I'll pray at the end, but you guys are the ones praying. Joel and Abriel, if you don't know, Abriel is going through cancer treatment. Um, so far, the treatment's been going good, but I want to keep praying for him. Okay. Okay. Pray for Miss Marlene, who's going through eye surgery right now. You're heading home. You're flying home when? This week? Okay. And for those who don't know her name, it's Maria. We've got a little mace baby who's still uh, cooking, right? So uh, pray for safety for Becky and Jim and the little one. Anything else? Here's a chance to be a family. Okay. And his name was Cassius Ezekiel? Cash. Okay. Yeah, Cash Ezekiel. Okay. Uh, Diagnosed with Crohn's disease, four years old. So be praying for him. Susie?
sure. Okay. Okay. Pray. Pray for a Trevor who Susie got to interact with at the hospital. Anything else? Okay. Let's uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Um, Nathan, I'll put you on the spot. Do you mind starting us? Yeah. And then, uh, I, I, yeah, I promise never to put people on the spot, so I apologize. Um, Nathan will start us. And then uh, if you hear a lull, if you hear a quiet, go ahead and pray out loud, and then I'll close this at the end.
Lord God, these are the prayers of your people. We ask that you would hear them and that you would answer. God, we say that both boldly and humbly, uh, recognizing that uh, we can come confidently into your throne room because of the blood of Christ, um, but also humbly recognizing uh, that you are the God of the universe, uh, the creator, the sustainer. I thank you that you have called us uh, to gather together and worship, and I thank you that uh, as we do so, you draw near. I pray that you would do that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah, that's one of the beauties of a small church is we get, a, we get to do that, and I want to make sure that we never overlook something like that. Our country, uh, the church in our country, for probably the, at least the last three decades, maybe longer, has had a leadership obsession. Would you agree? Yes? Okay. Low case in point. Here's a picture of one of the bookshelves in my office. I don't know if you can see it very well. Um, it is not a very clean bookshelf. Because in the back, all the way pushed back to the back of the bookshelf are all the books that fit on there the way they're supposed to fit. And then there is all the other books that are stacked up. Uh, you see a stack on top. You see uh, shelf number, well, one, two, three. Every single shelf with other books piling up. That's just one of the bookshelves in my office. If you look at the, let me see, one, two, and three, there are rows of books that are stacked horizontally compared to up and down. In just those books, just those ones, those four overstock stacks, one-third of those are leadership books. They have leadership in the title, or they are about church leadership of some sort. If I were to count all of my books, the ones on the three bookshelves, the ones at home in boxes, I'd probably have 70 to 100 uh, books on leadership. So we have a I, and many in the church, have a leadership obsession. When I lived in Chicago, uh, before I moved back to Spokane and landed here at First Church, I worked at a leadership development company, aptly called Leader Treks. Uh, we used the classroom of wilderness trips and missions trips to teach students leadership development. And the title that I was hired for, Leadership Specialist. Over the past couple of years with uh, Coach Mace at the helm at Shadle, uh, I've been able to work with the football captains, uh, not teaching them X's and O's, not teaching them to be better tacklers, uh, but I've taught them leadership. Uh, in fact, I was stopped at the gate at Joe Albee uh, the, two games back. I had my little coaching pass, and she looked at me and says, what do you coach? And I, I was like, uh, uh Leadership. Oh, okay, just checking. The church in our country, and I make sure I'm in the mix of that, uh, has a leadership obsession. Uh, most believe that the success of the church rises and falls based on its leadership, uh, more, more specifically based on the leadership of its senior pastor. If attendance is down, if giving is down, if there's less conversions, less baptisms than the year before, oftentimes fingers ended up pointing at the lead person. Now, is this good? Is this accurate? Is this called for? Is this justified? Uh, I'll let you guys decide that. 
This past Monday morning, I started reading a book I had meant to read over sabbatical. It was called Unleader by Lance Ford. It was a book I wished I had read 15 years ago when I started this passionate study of leadership. I mean, there was a significant paradigm shift this guy writes about. Leadership versus followership. So why do I share all of this? Well, I share this because this morning we continue in Paul's letter to a man named Titus. And we come to a section in the letter where Paul instructs Titus on leadership. Before we open God's Word, I want to pray again for our time in here. Lord, we trust that you want to speak to us this morning. And we trust that this is your word to us. So I pray, Lord, that uh, you would speak. If, if there are things that uh, I've, I've planned that you don't want shared, Lord, weigh that on me. Lord, guide us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to Titus chapter 1, verse 5. Now, as you're turning there, most of you know that during this time of year, when the calendar says October or November, the leadership at First Church, the board and pastor's cabinet, we start really praying about who to ask to join the leadership team for the next year. So we pray and we seek, and then we call certain people and we have them pray and consider serving. And each year, it's an arduous process. Bear with me, board and cabinet. Um, I was thinking this year we're going to make it a little bit easier. Okay, we're going to try and speed the process up a bit. I'm hoping you guys can help me with this through a little bit of self-evaluation. Not, not me, but you guys as self-evaluation. We're going to see who will not fit the criteria to serve on church leadership. So in just a moment, I'm going to have everybody raise one hand. I'll tell you when. Okay? What I'm going to do is read today's section of Scripture. And if you hear something that the Apostle Paul says that you feel disqualifies you from serving in a church leadership role, go ahead and put your hand down. Make sense? So I'm, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand, and we're going to read this section in Paul's letter to Titus, where there is a portion of leadership requirements, uh, qualifications, attitudes. If you hear anything that you think, ooh, that might not fit me, go ahead and put your hand down. At the end, I'll just make a mental note of whose hand is still up, and you can be expecting a call from the leadership within the past couple, of, the next couple of weeks, uh, asking you to consider serving. Okay? Everybody's like, "Oh, please don't don't do this." I was going to make you stand, but per the advice of my delegate, he suggested just have us raise our hands. Okay? Yeah. Thank you, Tim. Everybody, raise your hand. You don't have to raise it high. Okay? Every everybody, kids too, raise your hand. Okay? If you hear something that disqualifies you, put your hand down. This is Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. Michael, your hand's not up. They can't go down already. <laughs> we haven't even started reading yet. Okay, starting in verse 5. Paul says to Titus, I left you on the island of Crete so that you could complete our work there and appoint elders in each town as I instructed you. An elder must live a blameless life. He must be faithful to his wife, and children must be believers who don't have a reputation for being wild or rebellious. An elder is a manager of God's household, so he must live a blameless life. He must not be arrogant. He must not be quick-tempered. He must not be a heavy drinker. He must not be violent, and he must not be dishonest with money. 
Rather, he must enjoy having guests in his home, and he must love what is good. He must live wisely and be just. He must live a devout and disciplined life. He must have a strong belief in the trustworthy message he was taught. Then he will be able to encourage others with wholesome teaching and show those who are opposed to it where they are wrong. Any hands still up? Mine went down early. Oh my. Let's spend some time unpacking this letter, this, uh, this portion of this letter. First in verse 5, Paul says to Titus, I left you on the island of Crete so that you could complete our work there and appoint elders in each town as I instructed you. Paul's charge after this wonderful opening sentence that we looked at last week, his charge to Titus was this, finish the work. Finish the work. Other translations say, complete our work there. Straighten out what was left unfinished. Put what remained in order. Here's my personal favorite. Any deficiencies in the organization of the church should be rectified. Finish the work, young man Titus, Paul says, on this island known for being self-indulgent, belligerent, wild, immoral, sexually promiscuous, gluttonous at feasts, and a place where lying is the norm. Finish that work, Titus. And of course, I and many others who have ever served in a pastoral role just think, huh, a pastor's work finished? So what is Paul saying to do? Well, in this section, he's really telling us to do two things, but the first is what we'll look at today, appointing elders. This appointing of someone, this setting someone aside for some sort of specific task, it dates all the way back to the beginning of Scripture. In fact, this language of appointment is in Exodus chapter 2, verse 14. And throughout the Old Testament, and, and then you get to the Apostle Paul, and you see that it's his practice, too, of appointing people as he goes around into places and establishes churches. We see this in Acts chapter 14, verse 21 to 23. It says, after preaching the good news in Derby and making many disciples, Paul and Barnabas returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch of Pisidia, where they strengthened the believers. They encouraged them to continue in the faith, reminding them that we must suffer many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Paul and Barnabas also appointed elders in every church. With prayer and fasting, they turned the elders over to the care of the Lord in whom they had put their trust. So everywhere they went, Paul and Barnabas would appoint elders in the churches. So that leads us to a question. What is an elder? The word for elder is presbyteros. Properly defined, it is a mature man having seasoned judgment. A mature man having seasoned judgment. Hopefully there's a few women in here who are starting to squirm, maybe to shift uneasily a little bit, okay? The Greek is gender-specific. It does mean a man. There is a feminine version of this word, presbyteros, found in 1 Timothy 5, verse 2, but there it's just referring to women who are older in age, not women with an official church office or title. So this leads us to another question already. Can a woman be appointed as an elder? Can a woman lead in the church? 
You guys are thinking to yourself, Seahawks game starts at 1.30. Let me tell you this. This is a pivotal question. Okay? One that's been wrestled with for centuries and centuries by countless people in church's history. And I don't take this question lightly. Okay? I'm not going to enter this debate today. Is this debate on women in leadership. It's planned. I'm going to do this. Planned for a sermon in 1 Timothy later in the series. So I'm telling you I will tackle this, just not today. What I will tell you today, though, is that in our denomination, the Free Methodist Church, we do believe in ordaining women as elders. We do believe that women can, do, and should be in leadership. And more on that to come after the Advent series. For the purposes today, as I speak of an elder, know that the Greek word was gender-specific, so I will be saying man, and that's why. So an elder is a man of seasoned judgment and experience, a man who is equipped to lead and oversee others. Now, I use this word oversee intentionally because you see it in verse 7 in most of your Bibles. It says an overseer is a manager or a steward of God's household. Now, the word for overseer is episkopon. This is a person, again, a man, this is a male term in the Greek, who looks intently. Someone called by God to literally keep an eye on God's flock, providing personalized care and protection. Now, one author writes that though in some contexts, episcopon has been regarded traditionally as a position of authority, in reality, the focus is upon the responsibility of caring for others. There are a lot of people who would differentiate between uh, episcopon and presbyteros, but for today, I'm going to be using them synonymously. Uh, If Paul were writing to a mega church leader today, you know, who had a ton of high-caliber leaders bursting forth at every turn, we might be able to differentiate. But I and most of the scholars believe that, that Paul was telling Titus, hey, the people you're going to appoint are going to be in smaller churches, house churches. So there's probably not going to be an abundance of people knocking on Titus's door saying, hey, I can be an elder and that person can be an overseer. He was using that term synonymously. You can see this in Acts chapter 20 also where Paul uses these two words interchangeably. So Paul is saying appoint people who oversee God's flock, caring for them and protecting them. A little application for today. In a church our size, though we may consider ourselves small, I do believe that there are many who serve in this elder type role. Look at the people on the board in the cabinet. They they fall into this category of overseeing, caring for, and protecting God's people. So just because Paul says to appoint, and on paper, I'm the only appointed elder here, I ask you, don't check out, okay? Because you're going to see, hopefully, through this message that, to some degree, each and every one of us are called to this. So let's look closer at what Paul, at who Paul says that uh, we should appoint, Starting in verse 6, and I want to point out that I deeply value how Paul begins here as he talks about the office of elder. Verse 6 says, An elder must live a blameless life. He must be faithful to his wife, and his children must be believers who don't have a reputation for being wild and rebellious. Blameless. Blameless. I peaked. 
during that exercise at the beginning, and I saw almost every single hand go down when I read that word. I'm going to come back to that word in just a little bit. What I want to point out now, though, is that when Paul begins laying out this office of elder, the duty of overseeing, his first emphasis is not overseeing church people. His first emphasis is oversight in the house. He says he must be faithful to his wife. Other translations read, must be a husband of one wife. This phrase in the Greek is ambiguous, and it has led to a lot of debate in the church throughout the centuries. There are certain faith traditions that use this phrase to mean that a divorced man cannot serve as an elder. Now, our tradition does not take that that stand. In our ordination process, if there's been a divorce in the past, there's protocol that's followed, there's questions that are asked, there's efforts that are made to make sure those being put in leadership roles are leading from a place of health and wholeness. This ambiguous Greek phrase, what what we believe is that Paul is describing a, a man who displays fidelity, faithfulness within marriage. He's saying that if someone is to be an overseer, he must first be faithful to his wife. He must love her. He must care for her. He must protect her. Now, that does not mean that you have to be married to be an elder. You see Paul as an example of that. He's saying if the man is married, he must remain faithful. Now, next charge for in the home, still in verse 6. Paul says the elder's children must be believers who don't have a reputation for being wild and rebellious. First off, he says the children must be believers, followers of Christ. What's interesting is that in in the letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul also lays out this list of what an elder must be. And this qualification, this specification is not in there. There's nothing listed about the kids' faith in there. Now, most people think it's added here due to the rugged pioneer setting of the faith in Crete. Paul is most likely on that island just trying to assure that there is not a divided household where dad is a strong believer, but kids are not. Now, it's also part of the culture back then, the patriarchal society. Dad's faith was passed on and believed in by the kids. So the kids, Paul says, must be believers, and they must not have a certain reputation. They must not be open to charges of debauchery or insubordination. Great words, yeah? They can't be accused of profligacy. There's actually a translation that has that word in there. I had to look it up. Verse 6 says they must, have, must not have a reputation for being wild and rebellious. This first word, wild, is a Greek word that means incapable of saving, wasteful, extravagant in a bad way, one who pours out his substance on personal pleasure. If I were to stand up here and tell you the story of the prodigal son, you'd hear this exact same word used to describe the riotous, wild living of the son who blew his father's inherited wealth on drugs Drink and women. Now the same word is used in 1 Peter chapter 4 when Peter is talking about living for God. Peter says, of course your former friends are surprised when you no longer plunge into the flood of wild and destructive things that they do. So they slander you. Are you getting the picture of this type of living? Okay. An elder's child cannot have that type of reputation. 
Now, they also cannot have the reputation of being rebellious, insubordinate, disobedient. This is something that that Paul is telling Titus you're going to have to be aware of on the island of Crete. You look at the first half of verse 10, it says there are many rebellious people on that island. In verse 6 that we're looking at, this word most likely refers to a kid's flagrant disregard for their father's authority. We see that a lot from kids today. Now, if we took the same stand that the, the Jewish tradition took on a rebellious child, we'd have a lot less children. Let me, let, me, let me just read you their stand on that, okay? Deuteronomy chapter 18. Suppose a man has a stubborn and rebellious son, okay? Same word. A son who will not obey his father or mother, even though they discipline him. In such a case, the father and mother must take the son to the elders or to the leaders as they hold court at the town gate. The parents must say to the elders, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious and refuses to obey. He's a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the town must stone him to death. In this way, you will purge this evil from among you, and all Israel will hear about it and be afraid. Wow. So Paul is telling Titus, you children cannot have a reputation of being rebellious. They can't have a reputation of disobeying their father. Now, these may seem like high requirements, but remember Paul is saying, hey, these men are leaders of households who we're going to ask to be leaders of churches. And showing that their entire household has turned away from the culture here on Crete is going to be evidence of, proof of their readiness to lead. One commentator states that the true training ground for eldership is at least as much in the home as it is in the church. I'm going to say that again, and when I finish it, I need everybody to say amen. Okay? The true training ground for the eldership is at least as much in the home as it is in the church. Amen. This is probably why this past summer... Uh, when I was on sabbatical, I met with many pastors, okay? And I asked them, hey, give me your, give me your hints for ministry longevity, and what are the things that are going to kill ministry longevity, that are just going to end it? And I sat down with the, the TRC leadership coach, and I asked him that same question. I says, what is going to make my ministry last a long time? He didn't blink. He said, date your wife. Wow, I can do that. I said, what, what next? You know, I, w- I was thinking he was going to, you know, have this long exposition about uh, what to do with you all. He says, date your wife and never miss one of your kids' games. Wow. Ah. And he said, let's be honest. You're in a stage of life where you're really, really, really busy. So disciple your family as you go. It, anything else? No, that's it. You do that, you'll have ministry longevity. This man realized that an elder's home life was and is pivotal to how well he'll be able to lead the church. Now, one last thing to note from verse 6. Hey, remember last week how we talked about godliness being the balance of uh, orthodoxy and orthopraxy, uh, right belief and right action? Here we see Paul fleshing this out in his description of an elder's kid. Okay, the kids must be believers, right, belief, who, have, who are known for right actions or not known for wrong actions. That's verse 6. Now on to the next. 
verse 7, begins, an elder is a manager of God's household, so he must live a blameless life. A manager, a steward, a lot of your translations will say. This is one who takes care of someone else's belongings until that person returns. A steward is somebody who takes care of someone else's belongings until that person returns. That's what Paul is saying an elder must do. He must oversee God's belongings, God's church, until Christ returns. And the first characteristic trait that we're looking for in that person is they must be blameless. Anytime in any short amount of sentences in Scripture, if a word is used twice, pay attention. Okay? We're going to tackle that now. Blameless. What does that mean? Well, the word blameless in my Bible is translated in many of yours as above reproach. It's a legal term. It means free from any charge of domestic, domestic or civic impropriety. What Paul was saying is that this candidate's reputation, both inside and out of the church, must pass the test. Monday and Tuesday, I sat and I wrestled with this term, blameless, this, this term above reproach. And I struggled with it because part of me wanted to say, wow, a word that strong, it, it means that somebody has to be sinless. Somebody has to be perfect. Well, that's way too high a standard for anybody, let alone leaders, okay? Jesus was the only one who was sinless, the only one who was perfect. So perfection and sinlessness, I came down, wasn't what he was looking for. What I came down to was this. A person can still be above reproach, can still be blameless, and have made mistakes. They just have to own up to those mistakes. They have to realize their wrongdoing. They have to be held accountable to them. They have to seek forgiveness and then, by God's grace alone, continue to live in a way that they do not fall into that same sin again. Now, if that's the definition of blameless, perhaps some of our hands would would have stayed up a little bit longer in the exercise we did. As we look at the coming list of of, uh, uh, leadership attributes, we can know that an accusation, whether true or false, would not be grounds for ineligibility for eldership. Rather, I think what Paul is telling Titus is, look for uncorrected, habitual tendencies of misbehavior. Hey, issues that do not and have not been corrected in the candidate's life. There can be no regular unaddressed sin in that person's life. This will be evident to both those inside the church and outside. Blameless and above reproach. Make sense? I think Paul is continuing to unpack this orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Beliefs must match actions. Now, with this idea of what blameless and above reproach means, let's take a look at the list that Paul tells Titus to use when appointing elders. He says he must not be arrogant, must not be quick-tempered, must not be a heavy drinker, violent or dishonest with money. He must enjoy having guests in his home. He must love what is good. He must live wisely and be just. He must live a devout and disciplined life. He must have a strong belief in the trustworthy message he was taught. Then he will be able to encourage others with wholesome teaching and show those who oppose it where they are wrong. If you're looking at that list through the kind of redefinition of blameless and above reproach, it 
kind of changes things. I've wrestled this last week on where to go from here. And I guess last night and this morning, I really sensed God saying, hey, just, just stop right where we're at this morning. Uh, you, you can ask Beth. I have a whole nother mini slides uh, and about half a sermon left. But I think we're going to stop. Because I think as we wrestle with uh, eldership, as we wrestle with leadership, whether your, your picture's on our official wall or not, I think we need to spend some time and just let what we've heard so far soak in. We need to be able to ask ourselves, are we living a blameless life? Above reproach? Is there habitual sin that we need to address? Is there things that those outside the church may see that those inside the church don't see? Are there ways that we treat our family behind closed doors? Are there, is that different than how we treat them here on a Sunday morning? Is there ways that we talk to our kids, our parents, our spouses, that we may not talk to them like in these walls? Are there ways we talk to our coworkers like that? I just think we're going to stop. In fact, I'm going to have Tim come. I'm going to have him strum just a little bit and play quietly. And I want us to spend some time just thinking, reflecting. Are we stewarding? Are we managing, keeping an eye on what God has put in our care until he comes back and reclaims it? I think if, if Paul says, first take care of things in the home, and then we can look at church leadership, and we'll look at this entire list um, next week. I think if we can see in home that we're living a, a way that is above reproach, then we can consider the rest of that list. So let's spend just a few moments praying. If, if you need to confess to God that you are treating people uh, differently outside than inside, if, if your Monday through Friday language doesn't match your Sunday morning language, confess that. If there's somebody that you need to ask forgiveness for, send a text. Say, hey, I've, I've realized that I shouldn't have been treating you this way. I'm sorry. Let's, let's wipe our slate clean in our own homes before we tackle the ability to lead in something like this. So let's spend a few minutes praying. I'll close us, and then uh, the worship team will come up, and we'll sing one more song.